0: Being a mother is an attitude, not biology.
1: An unknown writer once said, if you give me any three words, I'll write you a story about my mother. Story is in our DNA, and of course, so is she. We gathered stories for men and women in all walks of life. Stories about the ones we have, the ones we are, the ones we know. This includes stories about stepmothers, godmothers, grandmothers, birth moms, foster moms, the mom up the street, It includes stories about not being a mom and stories about mothering in other ways. No matter how you slice it, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Hi everybody, I'm Lupe Padilla Mitchell. I'm a life coach of mothers and families and a mother of three adult daughters. I'm Katie
0: Mitchell, actress, writer, storyteller, and mom of a teenage son. So today's writer is not a writer by trade but there is no question that John Wise is a writer. John's story deals with secrets about the ghost of a mother who wasn't his own, but who haunted his family nonetheless. John Wise is an attorney living in New Orleans with his wife, Gail.
1: Well, hi, John. Um, thanks for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's a very much of a privilege.
1: Mm. I we read your story, and I was like, "Well, we haven't seen this one," and that's the best thing about the podcast—we have so many interesting stories.
2: Well, thank you. I hope I—I uh, I had hoped it wasn't too dark for you.
1: <laughs> oh no, no, it was—it was perfect. You never know what story you're going to get. This was a gift. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you.
0: I'm thinking because it's so unique.
1: How do you feel about just jumping in and
0: reading, and then? We'll ask you some questions afterwards and have a chat about it.
2: Oh, I'm good with that. That's you know typical lawyer thing here. We love we love to talk. All
0: right, yeah, here we go. All right,
2: a mother obscured. To begin with, this is not a story about my mother. She and I were not to enter the picture for a number of years. It's another mother story of a ghost. A shadowy presence that moved along the distant edges of my childhood, whose memory was in the custody of others, reluctant to part with it or even let it see the light of day. Nonetheless, I will start with my own beginning, for this is perhaps where the secrecy all began. I was born on a late spring day in 1958 in Shreveport, Louisiana, the first and only child that my parents produced together. I don't know much about that day, other than that I was a forceps delivery and that whether for reasons medical or otherwise, my parents had no children after me. They brought me home to a small but cozy ranch-style brick house on a barely suburban street that smelled of pine straw and newly mowed grass. Waiting for us when we came home was my older brother. There are photos of him holding me in my blanket outside that house. I knew he was much older than I was, but a child does not always think to ask why. He was just Bill like my father, and always seemed like one of the big people. My father's parents lived an hour away to the Northeast. They were simple, rural folk who owned a small farm that had once been a means of subsistence, but had dwindled to a faded blue wood frame house, a pasture with a dairy cow or two, vegetable gardens, a cornfield, a chicken coop, and a dark, somewhat scary barn. Grandma and Grandpa were kind enough to me, though there were always a bit of a gap between us. When I was six, my father's employer transferred him to New Orleans, setting my life on an entirely different course. I would never be a full part of my country family. Geographical and cultural distance would see to that. Instead, I grew up idealizing their rural world and its advantages and eventually came to enjoy the company of my grandparents on those occasions when I did see them. I certainly did not fully understand them or the past that shaped them. I was related to them loved by them, but not of them. This was not the case with my brother. In my earliest memories, he was always at home in that house, with my grandparents, with the roads that led from their house to destinations that were a mystery to me. He knew the names of the older people who stopped in the driveway. He knew stories that predated my birth, the names of dogs, horses, and even chickens from a past in which he had participated. I put that down at the time to his age, figuring you just knew those things when you were a teenager and you had been around for a while. He must have made more trips there than me. That was logical, but it was not the truth. I cannot recall today the exact moment when I learned that my brother had a different mother from me. I do remember that I initiated the discussion with mom. I want to say I was five, that I learned this the year before we moved to New Orleans, but it could have been later than that. No one ever spoke of her, not even once. I remember what mom said, though, Bill's mother died. That was all. Learning that mom was not Bill's mother made some things clearer. A tension had always existed between my parents and my brother that even I could feel. In dad's case, it came across as awkwardness and sometimes disapproval. In mom, it revealed itself in a determination to motivate him, to eat better, to study more, to be more responsible. She had become an orphan herself at the age of 17 when her father died. So maybe she knew something about loss and unwelcome change. She tried her hardest to mother him. I can see now, and he tried equally hard to pull away. My youthful imagination came up with many scenarios about my brother's mom. Had she died of a dreadful disease? Had she been in a tragic accident? I thought about it for a while, but couldn't see a way to get an answer. Mom's tenseness let me know I was not going to get more out of her and implied that I should not ask my father, or my brother for that matter. I accepted this as a child accepts the decisions of omniscient parents. It was all just too sad. It was impolite to intrude into the sorrows of others. Still, I continued to look for clues where I could find them. Because of our age difference, my brother was remote from me. We traveled in different circles. I was in kindergarten and he in high school, so the opportunities for interaction were limited then. Despite this chronological distance, I was fascinated by him and by the things he did. He was often funny, and he was generally thoughtful towards his baby brother, building me a snowman when a rare snowfall enveloped our house or riding me through the neighborhood on the handles of his bicycle. Mostly, though, I remember him from afar, watching him as he flew model airplanes, played guitar, went off in cars with his friends. If he was marked by sorrow, I did not see it. What I did see was a son who could not find his footing with his parents. This was a key difference between us. If I had a talent, it was living up to expectations. I was precocious in my observations, bookish when I learned to read, the type of traits that gained you early approval. Bill was not a strong student, but he was creative. He was not driven, but he was kind. Where I had a directness with mom and dad that did not permit them to ignore or avoid me, Bill often seemed to wait for acknowledgement that did not come or came too late. Like most children, I did not dwell on the mystery of my brother's lost mother for long, but focused on issues of more direct importance to me then, not the least of which was how to join the world of male activities that included my father, my brother, my grandfather, my uncle, and my first cousin. The information I needed most was how to go on their fishing or hunting trips, or be allowed to shoot the guns that were around when we went to see my grandparents. I saw the countryside of North Louisiana rather mistakenly as an adjunct of the American West. There were cattle, there were guns, and in the case of my cousin, there were horses. I tell my family today that my earliest ambition was to learn to rope and ride, and they laugh justifiably so far have I strayed from that plan. But it was no laughing matter then. Guns mostly took the form of the Daisy BB gun my father gave me and permitted me to use after initial training, with little or no supervision. I can say with little exaggeration that I shot every gumball from every available gum tree and lots of coffee cans set on fence posts and fancied myself a dead shot. Eventually, my grandfather let me shoot his single-shot 25 squirrel rifle. I was about 9 or 10 then, and it was the highest of honors in my mind. Even during my preoccupation with becoming a frontiersman, clues would occasionally surface that led me back to the question of her. My father's name was one. At some point, I realized that his parents, his younger brother, and almost everyone else in that small town called him Harwell. It was his middle name, and his parents had apparently preferred it and referred to him as nothing else during his own childhood. When we went home to New Orleans, however, everyone called him Bill. Mother never called him anything else. This abrupt shift in names could have meant many things, the simplest being that he just did not like his uncommon middle name. Perhaps this was partly true. From the benefit of hindsight, I now wonder if it was not his not-so-subtle way to fashion a new identity, to escape things that he disliked or that caused him pain. If it was, he was only partly successful. He would return to his childhood home and he would become Harwell and all that went with it. When my grandparents said Bill, it only meant my brother. Another clue came from my grandmother, who allowed a reminiscence to escape one morning when we were picking peas in her garden. On the way back, she stopped under the shade of a tall, slender cypress tree growing on the north side of her house. Did you know, she asked, "Mickey and I planted this tree when Bill went away to live with Harwell and Dorothy. We were both so sad, we decided to plant a tree. Went away? He had lived here as a child but for how long? After his mother died? While she was ill? Why had he not lived with my father? Looking up at her, I could see a trace of feeling in her practical eyes, what I would now call wistfulness. She had raised him. This had been his home before our Shreveport home. She had a sad recollection stored away in that tree, and she sensed I would understand. I didn't, of course, but it made me want to. Another thing stands out about that trip— Mom and Dad were mad at Bill and Grandpa. Bill had been in college for a little over a year in Monroe. Without telling my parents, he had dropped out of college, returned to my grandparents' house, and stayed. He had gone to work at the paper mill in town, which seemed to satisfy my grandfather but angered my father. They walked around each other on the issue, probing, but never putting it all on the table and having it out. But I know my dad wanted to. The farewell that trip was brusque. Bill did not come out in the yard to see us off. I rode in the back seat and listened to mom and dad rehash the situation as they saw it. Grandpa was getting a lot of the blame. They raised him, I wanted to say. Grandma told me. Is it that wrong for him to want to be there? I could have never been that articulate. I knew, though, that a part of me was taking his side. In September 1968, my grandfather died suddenly. It was the first major death in my life. Driving up to the farmhouse, I watched my father for signs as to how I should behave. When we pulled in, I saw my grandmother open the back door and start to walk to us. I was about to run to her when I looked back and stopped. My father was leaning against our car, convulsed with sobs. I had never seen him cry, and it shook me. So much grief, so much history between them. My father was only 47 years old, my grandfather 71. I can see now what I could not then that they were not through with their dialogue, that death had closed off important opportunities. Those sobs remain with me. It was his one and only acknowledgement before me as to how life fails us. How was I to know he had cried like that before? After my grandfather died, many things seemed to change at once. My brother had joined the Navy and gotten married. He was moving around to exotic locations like California, Corpus Christi, Virginia, and beyond. My father, ever responsible, began to take an interest in Grandma's house and the condition of her property. We began to take longer vacations there. He began to talk of retiring, of moving back and building a house. I took these musings literally at the time and was surprised when over the passage of years, they did not materialize. When we went to see Grandma, my father would pack his chainsaw, various tools to use at her house, and his pistol, a twenty two caliber with a longer barrel and a leather holster. I remember that gun going with us on every trip. It was the first real pistol I ever fired. I learned to hit cans and other targets with it. I suspect the pistol was brought for safety since we were far out in the country, though I never felt unsafe a single night I spent at Grandma's farmhouse. Whatever the reason, it was around, and I tried to use it whenever I could. As I grew older, I became more inquisitive about everything that was in Grandma's house. Always, I was seeking clues. Okay. I was probably snooping, but it seemed the best way to get answers to my questions. One of these snooping expeditions led me to their family Bible. In those days, every Bible had a middle section for writing down the owner's family history. I don't know what made me pull it out that day, but I was alone in the house, and I found those pages. Some of the information was familiar, some not. As I scanned the page that listed their children and grandchildren, above my name and my parents' wedding date was her name. More than that, here was her birth date, the date she married my father, and the date of her death. I did some quick math. Bill had been five years old when she died. She had been scarcely 23 years old. Alone in my grandmother's bedroom, my eyes welled with tears. I felt horrible for reading it, as if I was intruding on a terrible thing that was none of my business and that the survivors had worked hard to put behind them. I should let this go, I thought, but I could not. A few moments more and I saw something else. Just to the right of the entry about her was the name of another child, a boy who had been born six years before me and had passed away the same day. I had another brother that no one told me about, who had died, it seemed, two months before she had. I did not mention any of this to my parents or my grandmother when they came back. I felt some resentment then that they had not trusted me with this information or thought that they could conceal it from me. I suppose this would have gone on indefinitely, though I'm sure that my parents knew enough about me to know that one day I would force it out of them. And I did, months later. As usual, when it came to sensitive subjects, I went to my mother. She and I were together in this, the second family written in later on the lower part of my grandparents' Bible page. How did Bill's mom die, I asked. I was a teenager then, in high school. This was information I ought to know. My mother hesitated only a second and then said, she took her own life. Just like that, so many pieces of my family's unspoken workings fell into place. My father, home from World War II, had married a young hometown girl, had a child, began a career and a life, only to have it all go tragically wrong within five years. I could see much of it in my mind, though it was presumptive of me to think to know the details of the inner life of my father. Nevertheless, I was satisfied at last. I also felt a new sympathy for my father and brother, and an understanding for my own mother, who had to live with the memory of a dead predecessor and the residual feelings one or both of them may have had for her. As the years passed, I was able to get more information about her. There was a box of photographs at my grandmother's house. Not in our home, of course. Photos of her holding my brother as an infant, standing in the snow outside their married student housing at the University of Oklahoma where my brother was born. She was a pretty woman, with wavy hair more like mine than my brother's. Other pictures showed her in summer dresses, wearing loafers and short socks. If there was any sadness lurking behind her countenance in these images, I could not detect it. There were few pictures of my father and her together, I suppose it was because he would have been taking the photographs. I saw her grave almost by accident, when my father's cousin passed away and Dad and I went to her funeral. As we walked away from the service, he paused at a pair of headstones. I instantly took in the fact that it was she and my brother. He said nothing, and after a moment he walked back to the car. There were questions on my lips then, but that is where they remained. If he wanted to share any thoughts about them with me, I suppose he would have without prompting on my part. As he neared and then surpassed 80, my father began to decline, and his comprehension and short-term memory along with it. At the same time, he became more talkative, and as the lines of past and present began to blur, he began to let the occasional random thought from his past slip out. At the same time, my brother and I, now older men with our own families, could discuss the events of his childhood with perspective and share information freely in a way we had not decades before. In these conversations, I learned more of the story. My brother had heard stories that his maternal grandfather had been a violent man. There was a rumor that he had killed his wife, Bill's grandmother, in a fit of anger, but that no one could prove it and that her death had been put down to an accident. In one of his lucid moments, my father told Bill that he had to get her out of there meaning, it seemed, that he had married her as quickly as he did to get her out of an abusive household. He had succeeded, but perhaps not in time to prevent the sadness from following her. My brother remembered quite a bit more than I would have thought a five-year-old would have. He remembered the day it happened, my father crying in an adjacent room at their house, our grandparents whisking him off to the farm where he would remain for five years. He remembered the pain of her leaving him and not understanding how she could have left him this way. How did she do it, I asked finally. She shot herself with a pistol, he said. A year or so before dementia rendered such conversations impossible, my father and I were talking about my brother. Out of nowhere, he volunteered. I still have her suicide note. I suppose I should give it to Bill. After he died, I found that note in his desk drawer. It was short, written in green ink, and very clean script. She was apologetic and yet resigned to her course of action. She told my father that he knew how she had struggled with it, as though this meant he would understand. I wondered if this was true. My father died a month after a hasty evacuation from Hurricane Katrina in a nursing facility down the road from my brother's home in Texas, my mom sitting by his side. I like to think that in some sense he knew that my brother was nearby and that the many false starts of their relationship had ended on a note of mutual love and acceptance. We buried him a few days later by my grandparents in the cemetery next to their one-time church. A few surviving cousins attended and graciously shared stories about Harwell. It was an end to his story, and I suppose if I had thought about it at that moment that it was also the end of her story, but it was not. After I'd probated my father's will and dealt with dividing his property I called my brother to ask what personal items he wanted my father had left a number of the old guns of which I only wanted the 20 gauge shotgun that he had let me use on the rare occasions we hunted my brother asked me about the 22 pistol which was still in its holster at my mother's house that was the gun she used to kill herself he said simply to that i had no ready answer i took a breath and said sure I did not feel the least bit good about it. As I hung up the phone, my mind went back in time to a ten-year-old boy shooting that pistol, the sound of the bullet leaving the chamber, and my father, standing nearby, observing me and hearing the same harsh report.
0: That was so beautiful, John. I'm so moved by that story.
2: Almost like a Flannery O'Connor story at the end. (laughs) Yeah. I guess, I guess, Katie, we have that that history uh, in common of the the uh, macabre southern past. <laughs> we do have that in common.
1: Oh, it is totally southern.
0: So, John, I just want to say again, one of the things I'm most excited about your gorgeous story is that you're not a writer by trade, and we've had so many people ask us if we only use, you know professional writers. Now, let me just say this. You're not a writer by trade yet.
1: Exactly. Oh my goodness.
0: Well, I've never been I've never been compensated for it, let's put it
2: that way. <laughs> exactly. That's all I mean. But what a beautiful writer you are. I was gonna say that I think a lot of lawyers are frustrated storytellers because a lot of what we do mm. in our career is to try to make things clear or convey a story or a a point of view as a story and that's how you connect with jurors or judges or other sides is is making a story clear so i think it does come out a little bit of what i what i do for a living yeah, yeah.
1: really when when you tell your story it's life's work kind of cuz you've been unraveling this story your entire life you've been finding clues and piecing together since you've been tiny like you you how many people out there have had to put together clues because something was not making sense throughout their childhood. And now you kind of brought it to life in this beautiful story.
2: Well, thank you again. I I think that's right. I think that we all have these things that we hide or conceal from people we love and care for. Sometimes I think with the idea that it's for their best interest, yes. And I certainly never felt that mm. that was the case, even though I think they were all well intentioned. And I think it would have been a lot better for my, mm. for me, for my, and particularly for my brother, who who I love and adore, you know, to have dealt with some of these secrets in a little more open fashion.
0: Well, of course, and because we all learn through story, I, this is how, from the beginning of time, we have shared what it is. To um, have a human experience, and we learn much more in the telling of our stories than of the keeping of those stories in our back pockets. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm, even though I'm not saying it well.
2: Well, I do, and I, I was thinking of um, of the Odyssey uh, when you just said that. You know, one of the oldest stories. I guess this is a, a result of my daughter, who's a, a classics professor, so. <laughs> I'm informed by a lot of, of, of the things that she, she studies these days. But, <laughs> but it, it's a story that unravels. You know, it's 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 it doesn't start where you would think it would be. It's a story of a son looking for a father. Yeah. And then it gets into this whole journey. And then it ends with a, a son looking for another father. And yeah. I think that's kind of what stories are sort of all about. It's It is about unraveling what lies beneath. I was moved to
0: tears. I was so touched by every single character. The young boy who's trying to figure it all out. The boy whose story has been sort of abruptly interrupted so many times. Your grandparents' story, your mother's story, your brother's mother's story, obviously. And without question, your father's story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One woman's actions. Yeah. um, And her sorrow and taking her life. And we just see the reverberation of its effects way beyond that moment. And you just see the subtle shifts everyone's lives took after that.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: And I love your story, because how many children are peeling back tiny bits of a story that no one is saying out loud, and they're trying to piece together what their mother isn't saying, what their father isn't saying, what their grandparents aren't saying, like, children are intuitive. Dealing with the truth is always so much better um, with children. And yes, sometimes you have to get some help on how to do it correctly. But I really think that it is best to deal with the truth than it is to have a lie.
0: Or a secret, yeah.
1: A secret, just like a shadow or a fog on a family. Because you can see how the fog just kind of spread its way out in every aspect and everyone you knew.
2: Well, ex- exactly, and you know there was so much regret, and I think things that were unsaid, which is really unfortunate. You know, especially in the case of my my parents and my brother. You know, I I, I think their relationship obviously improved a lot over time, particularly after we were all grown. But it just felt to me that that there was something that was failing there, and that now you know, once I learned more about it, it was. A sense that well they didn't come to grips with this they pushed it into the back and maybe there was social stigma maybe it was just that people just sort of shouldered their burdens in silence in that yes you know time in history but it had some some unfortunate outcomes
1: yeah I would love to hear your brother's story because that secret you know had him his his childhood had a, a, like a huge wedge in it a wedge between him and your father and. Um, It seems like through a couple lines, your mother thought he was someone to be fixed.
2: I I think she did, yes. And she, you know, she loved him, but she didn't know the way to convey that, I think.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: I think also because I think suicide's scary. I think mental illness is scary. And back in a time where therapy was so brand new and also... Just in society back then where everybody kept their stuff close to the vest, you know, you didn't, you say in, in the piece so beautifully about, you know, respecting each other's privacy, not trampling on those areas.
1: It's impolite to intrude on the sorrows of others.
0: That That's what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Because I, I had some traumas in my childhood that I wish somebody had overstepped their bounds. I would have welcomed somebody coming and not minding their own business, you know, and standing up and saying, hang on, not okay, what's happening here, right? But that was a time nobody did that. You just, you figured it out on your own. You talked about things behind closed doors. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just saying for your own mother, the way she mothered your brother, it it, it had to also be scary, you know, to be dealing with.
2: I I think it was, and I think she didn't know which step to take. Mm-hmm. She was mindful of my father and i mean she always was a was a a wife that had a high regard for her husband and was was always wanting to make sure that that he was happy and and that he wasn't disturbed and mm-hmm. and I think you know maybe she just didn't feel it was her place to do some of these things because I, she was a much more communicative one of the two mm. I mean my father and my grandparents were just very they were stoic people mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess, a way to put it. My dad was funny when he chose to be, but he was so much of the time, he just held it all in.
1: I mean, I started writing lines because I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this isn't a book or you're not a writer, like a writer that's being paid to be a writer because um, the other line is a son who could not find the footing with his parents. Mm -hmm. And I think there are so many kids, teens, young adults, even adults who cannot find the footing with their parents and their parents cannot find their footing with their children I think that's really common
2: yeah and 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 I think that um you know my brother's case he almost had three childhoods you know he had the one that that no one talks yeah. about from zero to five and then he had the five five years with my grandparents and then he had the the next five years living yeah. with my parents and that's that had to have been very strange and unusual.
1: I, I, I can't wait for your brother to hear this um, podcast, and I would love to uh, I would love to get his take on it.
2: Well, he's a much nicer, more optimistic person than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about this too, that this
0: whole story is the ghost of a mother and and how it just colored everything.
2: Well, I feel that it did. And I, I guess the reason this stuck with me and resonated with me as an older older man is the fact that my dad had hung on to these mm-hmm. pieces of her all the way to the end of his life. So he clearly wasn't done with it yeah. in his own life. Oh my mind. god!
0: I mean, the gun—the revelation that that was the pistol that she
2: used—took my breath away. Well, it it was very jolting and upsetting to me at the time. I, I I I didn't know how to process that, and I mean it's it's you know the kind of thing that I just I could never be that practical or put that kind of distance between an object like that and and the and the reality of mm-hmm. what it was involved with. I mean that I I would have you know given it to the police or thrown it in yeah. a river or you know d- you beat it into into a million parts or something. Yes. The fact that he he didn't was interesting to me. Me too.
1: Well, yeah, and she always loomed in your family. They were; it was always kind of there. And the other thing, what struck me is that she came from an abusive situation, and he was her—he was her knight in shining armor. He—he he was going to save her. He quickly got her out of the situation, and yet he could not get her out of the darkness. That had to be crushing to your dad.
2: Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it's—it's it's like a failure that you—you you can't really escape. Uh huh. And you. Whether it's your failure or not, it—I'm it, it, sure it—it it has to seem that way.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
2: Well, one thing that that I really um, thought about too, in connection with all of this, and the the moment when I realized I had a a baby brother who had died, um, was whether or not, as later as an adult, I thought this—not when I learned it, but um, the idea of postpartum depression on top of whatever else was going on with exactly. her. Yeah, the, the sort of thing that was that was not diagnosed then. You know, and, and people yeah. wouldn't have dealt with or known or under, even probably understood.
1: Yeah. Your dad and his first wife were dealing with lots of sadness on top of lots of sadness. And then you could just imagine your older brother is just being present for all that sadness when he was so young.
0: No, exactly. When you have a miscarriage at two months or three months, it's devastating when you carry a baby to term. And, and it dies. I don't know. I mean, she was twenty-three years old. That loss
2: alone, right? People, people have the will to to quit living. Of, you know, you see that more with like older people who uh, have spouses die or something like that. But I, I don't think it's unique to that.
1: Yeah, it's a it's an apathy. There's a whole movement trying to figure out how to engage older people when they get to that point or before they get to that point. Yeah. So when you heard about the podcast, did you always have this story you wanted to write or did all of a sudden this one spring to mind?
2: That's a great question. Um, And I'll answer it this way. It's a story that's been in my mind in one form or another. Uh, And I've actually I wrote a short story that involved my dad um, coming back to North Louisiana after World War II. Um And touched on some of these issues about meeting a small town girl who maybe wasn't completely right for him and but but to get to this story, no, this was this was something that I didn't know what to do with it, and I didn't feel like it should necessarily be fiction. and so when Katie uh, told me about this and invited me so graciously to to think about submitting something, I thought, well, this might be the vehicle for that.
1: That's great., oh.
2: so thank you, Katie.
0: You're so welcome. I'm so glad that I was smart enough to um, invite you.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, this is a perfect example that everyone has a mother of a story to tell. And as soon as you sit down and commit to sharing it with others, it's quite the gift. It really is. And you don't have to be a writer. You All you have to do is just have a story to tell. That's what I'm encouraged uh, with this podcast and with inviting others to submit their work
2: no and I, I, i've listened to most of them and and they're all very fascinating and different
1: yes
0: we think so too
2: well i i, I want to thank y'all for letting me do this because this has been really a lot of fun to be sitting here chatting with y'all and 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 getting to read something uh that i wrote was just extremely pleasurable so thank you so much for that i i, I think this is really cool and i i hope you guys keep um keep this up for a long time, because it's it's a very interesting podcast to me. Thanks, John.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time, you know, because it's not always easy sitting down and writing your story. But um, I am so grateful that you did. There's a lot your story covers. It you know, There's so many subjects, whether it is about uh, suicide and it's It's lurking effects on families, being truthful with your children. And I'm I'm so happy you introduced this mother uh, that had such an effect and an impact on your uh, family.
2: Well, thank you.
0: Truly, thank you. Okay, that's the show. And to find out more about our writers, go to our website, Instagram, or Twitter. If it's not one thing, it's your mother. And that's the number one, not the word one. Want to do something to help us? Go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review us. Five stars would be nice. You can say something complimentary because you know what? It really does help other people find our show.
1: And also share us with a friend because word of mouth is the best compliment. Join us next week.